to Cry This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, collaborator, and all-round good bloke, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back. Matt, I always feel like I'm phoning that in a little bit. It's become, you know, it's just become, it rolls off the tongue these days. Oh, okay. Well, Lockie, if you're listening, there you go. You can just cut and paste. <laughs> oh no, but you know I, I do like to keep it current. But there's there's not a lot uh, to to add to it this week, and uh, you, you generally chip me if I uh, change the collaborator to to anything else, and uh, suggest that I'm making that you, you know, second fiddle, which you're definitely not. Oh, good. So, uh, mate, how's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, had um, a couple of nice beers, which were um, anything you want to uh, shout out. Uh, yeah, I tried the um the Thunder Road range. I had the uh, the Golden Ale, the Pilsner, and the inverted commas Pacific Ale. Okay, and uh, your thoughts on them? Because they 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 the, the bottle product is uh, coming from Belgium. Uh, yes, obviously. Yeah, uh, I thought the Golden Ale and the Pilsner were pretty good examples. I, um, I to be honest, I, I just uh, uh, perhaps the halo effect um of of thinking. Stone and Wood Pacific Ale and drinking Thunder Road Pacific Ale, and I got a bad taste in my mouth. I have to admit. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I just I didn't think that one was as well executed um, as to what it was claiming to be. But the Pilsner and the Golden Ale I thought were very good examples. But look, at the end of the day, to be honest, guys, um, I, I would I just rather not drink imported beer. Uh, look, when I'll, 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 I, I'll I think there are many other examples that are equally as good um, that are, are made here. And, and you know, all things being equal, I, I remember tweeting uh, or you know posting a, a blog post way back in the beer mat days. Um, yeah, my New Year's resolution was to all things being equal, drink local, um, and uh, that, that's still very true. I, you know, I, I, I sort of need. You know, I, I guess you're, you're the same. We, we need to sort of try the imports, um, you know, from time to time as samples, um, to just to you know stay current with what's happening and get a get a feel for for some of these beers, but. Um, you know, most of the stuff I put my hand in my pocket to, to buy or, you know, particularly when I'm doing beer tastings and things, uh, you know, very much work with the, the local breweries to support the local industry. Yeah, and I think it also means then that on the, well, for me uh, and for my family, on the rare occasions where I do get to, to travel widely, um, I find then drinking local makes me um, appreciate those beers better than if I had them over here. So it's kind of win-win. Well, it is. It, it's and you know that's what I refer to as the bintang effect. You know, beers always taste best. You know, when, when you're travelling and when uh, in context. In, in context, exactly. And uh, yeah, no, look, I have to say that you know, for for some of the hype for some of the breweries that you hear when they land, and you know, it's it's a very much a hype-driven business um, for a lot of it. Uh, you know, we we are seeing you know beers land to to much kerfuffle and. A lot of them have been a little bit underwhelming, um, particularly compared to some of the great breweries we've been, you know, seeing springing up in Australia. Yeah, and when you've when you've bought a six pack of, um, you know, a an unnamed um, but well known American pale ale, for example, in a you know in a convenience store in in San Diego, um, and then you go, wow, this is just blowing me away. This is how it should, you know, this is how it should taste. And then to have the same thing over here that's that's perhaps a little bit tighter and not quite as fresh. Uh, and obviously, there are certain breweries around that are making steps to uh, to prevent that from happening. But you just it just makes you realise that it, it, it's you know I know there's, there is one argument that um, that making beer was originally to sort of you know to preserve um, the, the crops of 
of grain and and preserve the hops and all that sort of thing and and therefore it, it is meant to travel um but I, I still think fresh is best is it, I, I, i'd not actually heard that because that was one of the, the things historically that because grain you know could be stored for up to a year that was one of the things that made beer such a uh, important beverage to early civilization you know you could only make wine when you had fresh grapes, you can only make you know, cider when you had fresh apples, but beer was something that you could store the grain and uh, brew throughout the year. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why beer is very good local. So, you know, we, we might have to go back to the historians for that one. But, Prof, where do you sit on the, the argument? You know, I look at some of the beers that are hitting the shelves, um, the imported beers are hitting the shelves, that, you know, like, what are they, the, the bomber, the, about a 660ml bottle in our um, language, you know, for around $24, $25 when they're not, um, you know, sometimes even more. Um, and, you know, you, you're paying a lot for the name and the, the fact that it's been on a um, luxury cruise ship rather than what's actually in the bottle is, is, is my read on it. Where do you look at, you know, stand on the pricing of beer? Yeah, I think it's all, it's all marketing. At the end of the day, it's if you can create the demand um, and then and then have the supply, then good luck to you. I think there are a lot of people out there who drink the label. There are a lot of people out there who drink the um, the concept of the beer. Um, and to be honest, I think a lot of them probably drink it without necessarily uh, being able to detect the difference between uh, perhaps a, a, an older, tireder, even oxidised sample um, than, than what it should be. Um, and to them, I say, you know, go for it. Um, oh, look, and, and it's how you enjoy it. And, you know, yeah. As I sort of talked with... Um, you know, Tim, uh, or Adam Ferrier, um, you know, the what he called the price placebo, where, you know, if you think you're drinking something better, you'd physically get more pleasure from it. And and that's a particular, you know, a, a legitimate um, experience as well. But, you know, that, that's why I love a blind tasting and, you know, it really sort of gives you an idea of, you know, once you strip away the labels and you're just tasting the product, uh, you know, what, what comes back at you. Yeah. So that's one of the things that, that I worry about for beer at the moment when there's a lot of excitement um there's a lot of you know hype and you know it, it, it's the, the thing to be involved in once that enthusiasm passes uh you know your, your motivation to spend a lot more money and you know seek out these esoteric beers is, is becomes a little bit diminished and uh you know it comes people do start to buy much more on price uh and and you know Breweries that have built their name or you know, have built businesses on commanding a certain margin uh, may struggle a little bit, which is uh, you know, my fear. Because one of the things that all of the guys that opened breweries in the 1980s and struggled um, you know, said that you know, it does come back to being a unit sum game or a unit cost game. Yeah. Um, so anyway. But uh, mate, we had a great response to our uh, mailbag or to our competitions last week. So people are obviously listening. Um, some really nice feedback. Uh, let me see. I've got one here from Mikey Z, um, who has who I credit with uh, getting you to use your microphone because he uh, described your <laughs> your pre new microphone as sounding like you're coming from a toilet. I think. Um, but he said, uh, just listen to the podcast, fellas. First up, CBIA stands for the Craft Beer Industry Association. It does indeed, uh, Michael. Um, unfortunately, somebody beat you to that one. So, but you will uh, for the second one. Just give us some feedback. You've uh, picked up the prize for uh, the, the feedback, so you pick up a copy of Adam Ferrier's book. So, Mikey, uh, Mikey Z, if you can 
uh, flick me your postal address. We will get that off to you this week. But Mikey said, uh, as for other feedback, Matt, I think your skills as a great interviewer are just going up and up. It's very nice. I'm uh, blushing. Um, this was evident in the interview with the guy from Core Brewing. You were courteous without uh, letting him off the hook, which must have been a, a difficult uh, fine line to walk. Um, yeah, it was. It was a very hard interview. So thank you for uh, for that, Mikey. And Pete, I'm glad you're now using the new mic, and I'm happy I was the one to give you a little encouragement on Twitter to get that out of the box into action. Sounds way better. Love the podcast. Keep it up. So Mikey, thank you very much for for that feedback. Um, you've got some there, Prof. Uh, yeah, I've got one here from Steve Germain, who also answered uh, our question correctly. Was, he... was the winner of the uh, yeah, CBIA, um, so he wins the signed Steve Hindy book. So likewise, Steve, if you can flick us a postal address and we'll get that out to you. Um, yeah, he was uh, impressed with the pretty interesting stuff, uh, particularly in the Hindy Ferrier episode. Uh, Steve Hindy, sorry, Hindy Ferrier episode. Um, uh, and he said, uh, doing a really good job at bringing out interesting conversations in a complex beer world where a lot of blogs and bloobs spend too much time talking <laughs> about the fruity nose and the subtle malt backbone. I don't think there's too much uh, of that for us, is there? Well, I mean, we, we there's not a lot of bloobing, do I don't think. I know what a blog is. What's a bloob? Is this something new? Is that something all the cool kids are doing now that I need to get onto now that I've mastered Twitter and Facebook? <laughs> isn't that isn't that what the, you have Snapchat for to show your blues? I, I, I just I, you're blushing. I'm, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, congratulations to both of you. Flick us your uh, uh, um, PO boxes or your your postal uh, addresses, and we'll get those prizes off to you. We might even look at getting some more prizes. It's something we've never really done um, because we've never had the We've never needed to, Matt. We've never, well, we've we, never we, need to incentivise our listeners to listen. Gratuitous, yeah. No, and we, we, <laughs> but it would be nice to reward them. It, it would, and uh, particularly, you know, if we are speaking to interesting people like Steve Hindy, it's great to be able to, uh, you know, share that with the listeners. So, uh, now we've got three short little um, uh, interviews today. Um, so, rather than one lead and then uh, one intro, um, we've got three today. Um, first up, we're speaking to Richard Watkins, formerly of the famous Wigan Pen Brewery in Canberra, and now of his own uh, brewery, Bentspoke, um, that just last week celebrated its first birthday. Um, Prof, have you been to Bentspoke? Do you get up to Canberra very often? No, I haven't. No, nor, nor have I. I really need to get down, particularly because Richard's, you know... It, 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 it's well, you, you don't want to sort of call him a, a, a guru, you know, a guru or a you know, hero or anything like that. But he's, you know, I guess you and I have been kicking around in beer for you know more than a decade now, um, and you know, which in some ways makes us old timers in the industry, which is a little bit scary. Um, but you know, Richard's been around for 17 years at uh, Wigan Pen and you know in the industry for more than 20 years. So you know. He was one of the guys. He was one of the few guys who was out brewing when I first got interested in beer, and was always doing interesting stuff. Was you know always had an interesting point of view. So um, it was. I'm surprised it's taken us this long to catch up um, with him. Yeah, it'll be a good chat. Well, I started the interview by saying just wishing him a happy birthday. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. It's uh, certainly gone pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly uh, you know you guys have created a real niche very quickly uh, in Canberra. I mean, you, you're, you're not new to the brewing industry. Uh, you've, you've been around for 20 years, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, how has it felt being in your own brewery, uh, running things, uh, you know, much more under your own control? 
Oh yeah, it's been uh, it's been a challenge. I mean, uh, I guess in my um, past brewing days, I I still had the control over making the beers that I I wanted to make, but um, obviously didn't really do much um, outside of the brewery um, brewery walls. But now um, brewing you know brewing beers that are once again pretty well what I what you know whatever I, ever I want, but also then engaging with the the customers and and uh, and getting their, you know, their feedback and, and that interaction is, um, you know, it's really important for working out the next beer to make. And how would you describe the Canberra community? You've, you've, Canberra's got a very, very strong homebrew community. Uh, they, they do very well nationally, but does that translate into a, a fairly educated market more broadly? Absolutely. Um, I reckon that Canberra would be the craft beer capital of Australia per capita. <laughs> And that's some uh, fighting, fighting words. Well, I mean, how many breweries are there in Brisbane, Matt? Uh, I think we're up to about eight now. Eight? And uh, how many yeah, people? How many people would you live? Would you think live in Greater? Greater, uh, greater Brisbane. I think it's about two and a half these, two and a half million these days. So if we divide two and a half million by eight breweries, let's just make it ten breweries. We're getting two hundred and fifty thousand people per brewery. In Canberra, we have three breweries, and we've got three hundred and fifty thousand people. <laughs> We've got one brewery per 1.1. 1. 1, uh, if you want to want to have a look at it like that. So yep. Um, oh, and then you've got to throw in all the craft beer bars. Now I know Brisbane's got a lot of craft beer bars as well, and um, I'm not saying we would have three times as many. Oh, sorry, th- you know, in multi- I'm not saying you would have three times as many, but um, you know, I think when you add all that up, and the fact that we don't really have pubs, which is the big thing for for Canberra. I mean, we have about four traditional pubs that you see around we do have a lot of clubs um, but I think I don't think um, everywhere else has clubs as well so I think when you combine all those things together um, and if we could actually look at the sales of craft beer um, in Canberra I must admit also going into a discussion like this the whole word craft um, in regards to beer is starting to become a little bit uh, irrelevant Irrelevant. Uh, yes. I mean, for me, I think it, a lot of people find it pretentious as well. And uh, I'm a big believer that, that um, you know, I have a brewery, I make beer, all beer is crafted. Yep. And some beers are just more pleasurable to drink than others. Some beers are more popular than others. Some beers um, challenge the palate more than others. But, um, you know, I'm sure the guys even in... Uh, in the Forex Brewery there at Yetler or uh, at Abbotsford down in, in Melbourne. Feel as though they spend their days crafting beer, and they probably do. I mean, it's just a, it's a different type of beer to what we make. And that's a, a great point you raise because you've, you've been in and around the brewing industry for more than 20 years, and, uh, you know, that's... Uh, to almost uh, double uh, the, the time that I've been in. And when I first started writing about beer, craft wasn't even a word. You know, boutique was a perfectly acceptable description for, uh, or microbrewing was the, the, the Australian version, um, the, the way people talked about. Um, your brewing career predates the, uh, what I see as a bit of an epoch being, say, the foundation of Little Creatures around about 2000, which has been a, was a bit of a watershed event. You know, what, what changes have you noticed over, over the 20 years that you've been uh, brewing, you know, first at the Wigan Pen and now in your own brewery? Yeah, well, when I first started brewing, there weren't many breweries around at all. In fact, there was um, 
there was the, I think the two breweries that had opened up before the Wigan Pen was the Lord Nelson in Sydney and Bootleg Brewery in, in Margaret River were two of the first ones. And then, and then you had, um, uh, I think Grand Ridge down in, in Melbourne was around that time. Maybe the Wigan Pen was for something like that, rough, rough figures. And we're talking, you know, brew pub type arrangements, not... Um, wholesale breweries, obviously Matilda Bay started up not long after that, if not before. I'm not exactly sure of my dates there, but there weren't many breweries around, and I think the thing that, that I've noticed is that that um, the number of different number of breweries that have opened up, especially in the last you know five to eight years, um, it was a quite a steady growth from sort of '96 through to 2005, and yes, Little Creatures in 2000 certainly. Um, catapulted some of some people into setting up breweries, um, but I think that just shows that. And by that stage, obviously, also you had James Squire running around, and, Mat and then Matilda Bay, obviously being bought by um, CUB and continuing to do that. Um, so that, the big guys really pioneered. You know, they really started the whole change of beer from, you know, a lager-dominated market to something that had a lot more different flavours. Um, and then from that, like the small wine industry did, um, all of a sudden you had um, a lot more small breweries opening up. What got you into brewing? I mean, th these days it, it, there's such excitement, there's such camaraderie, there's you know a, a, a big group of people who provide a support network. You would have been a little bit Pat Malone when you uh, got, got involved. What, what, what was the attraction to you back then? Um, I guess um, for me, um, I think to be a good brewer, obviously you need to know the science behind making beer, but you also need to have some engineering skills. And I studied science and engineering at uni. Um, well, I quickly realised that, that um, neither of those was really for me, apart from the fact that I used to make a lot of beer um, um, in my, my flat while I was going to uni to pay a few of the bills. And I basically came to Canberra to visit a friend not really even knowing that much about the brewery here and, and suddenly there was a job going and there I was uh, um, cooking food in the kitchen um, simply just because I wanted to be around a brewery and then you know lucky enough that uh, assistant brewer position came up and um, a year and a bit later I was um, I was head brewer. Back in those days, I, I believe a, a number of the um, craft breweries that were around were brewing from extract. They weren't really even, uh, you know, there weren't too many that were doing all grain. Did you start off as an extract brewer at the Wigan Pen or were you always uh, all grain? No, we were always all grain. Um, the brewery was an extract brewery that had come from, um, uh, come, oh, I, can't, I can't remember, it came out of the James Craig, which is a, a starter, a brewery that started up um, in Sydney and then didn't last very long. Um, and it was an extract brewery, and then they built a, a mash tun to go with the brewery and uh, became an all-grain brewery from the start. It's always been an all-grain brewery. I guess if you, you know, 20 years going back to the, the, the mid-1990s, um, we, we did see a bit of an expansion in brewing in the early 1980s um, with... Uh, the Salamanca in Western Australia, which went on to become Matilda Bay, um, a number of the other breweries that you've mentioned. Um, but we also saw them drop off, you know, in the recession of the uh, early 90s. Um, so you, you came into the industry just as, you know, I guess the, the, the start, the, you know, the very, very start of the next wave happened. 
with so many breweries opening now, um, what's your feeling about you know the, the, the industry? Uh, do you think that there is the potential for that sort of contraction that we saw in the uh, late 80s, early 90s again? Or you know, have we really seen a change in drinking tastes and what people are willing to pay? Well, I think, we're, I think we have um, seen a, a, a big change in people's drinking habits. Definitely, we've seen that. Because, I mean, the big brands are, are getting smaller. And that's from no lack of attention by the big guys to their brands either. I mean, they're trying pretty hard to increase their sales and they're still going backwards. So that that says something, I think. But when you have a look at um, where Australia's placed in the world of craft beer, we're, we're, you know, we're at least 10 years behind the States. Um, and and we're, you know, probably at least close to five years, potentially even behind New Zealand. So... Um, I think when you have a look at the percent, the market share that craft beer, or, or we'll call it, keep calling it craft beer for the moment. We need to come up with a better word, but we'll, we'll do that at some point. <laughs> um, the craft beer market in the US um, being, you know, up to 10%, and in Australia it's 0.8% if you don't, if you take out the big guys, or 2.5% if you include them. So. If, the, if Australia keeps going along the, the way it does, I don't think there's enough stainless steel tanks in Australia at the moment to, to make the beer required. Um, mm. So that's that, that. I think that says that the industry's pretty pretty healthy at the moment. I mean, it still requires a few things to happen. I mean, uh, it still requires people to keep making good beer because as soon as there's a glut of um, craft beer that isn't so good, I think that's going to that's gonna hamper the industry more than, than help it. And I guess that's one of the lead, one of the main reasons. I mean, now that I'm a business owner, I would love to see excise relief, but at the end of the day, excise relief can also be a double-edged sword, and I think that a lot of people would get into the market who aren't craft beer or aren't, um, aren't sorry, get into the industry that aren't really there to make good beer, they're there to make money, which is why I don't want to see excise relief until we can have some safety in the industry about about that. Because I think people getting in and just setting up breweries to make money and having, you know, really um, uh, bland brands, if you want to call it that, um, I think would be damaging for, for the growth rather than helping it. But that's just my view. I mean, I'm not, I don't, don't know everything. That. <laughs> but you, you've certainly been around for a long time and you're well-placed to make some observations. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I've noticed, um, well, one of my observations would be that you've never really been a fashion follower. Um, you know, if, if you look at the, um, you know, the the craze for sour beers now, you've been making sour beers for years um, before it was even yeah, a, a think, big um, thing in I the think, States. Yeah, I think me, me, Brad Rogers and Brendan are sort of figuring out who, who first did their, who first did a craft, a sour beer. And that was, a, you know, certainly a long time ago. Um, I mean, I must admit, I plan to do them here at Bentspoke and we will do them at some point. But I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm investigating other other options at the moment to, to um, slowly bring, because I've got a whole different clientele to work with. I mean, I you know, the Wigan Pens um, is, is obviously still running and they've got um, got all their own customers and, and us over in, in Braddon um, have got, you know, a whole different set of customers that we're working with. So we, we can't just... Well, some of our customers certainly are ready for sour beers, um, 
not everyone is and um, they also take a lot of time and a lot of space and you know you need a few things to um, to do it properly you need to, to line up a few few ducks before you can just suddenly try and churn out a few a few sour beers and we'll definitely look at doing it but we're definitely looking at trying to create um, new and interesting styles what what beers have motivated and inspired you over the years and and what you know what what brewers do you hope to emulate with your uh, with with your own brewing um i think um I mean, lucky enough to have a tour around Oval. I think that's a really interesting brewing process that um, that I don't think um, most people probably um, appreciate. Um, Rodenbach, obviously, one of the you know one of the absolute icons in, in using in, in, in wild beers um, is certainly something that just their dedication and their commitment, I guess. And I know that they're now owned by a bigger company, which makes it potentially a lot easier for them to survive but they they were an independent brewery for a long time and uh, managing to create a product that, that just wouldn't you know, like it wouldn't cut it in mainstream pubs, I mean at, at the moment in Australia, it just would, would get you know, would get tossed around really um, but that's just, you know, that, that, that shows that, that goes to show what, what can happen when you when you do start with your own thing and you create your own flavours and, and create your own local um, distinction, I suppose, between your beers and, and, and other beers. Um, Rodenbach's an, an, an interesting case study because it is one of those beers that's been around, you know, before craft beer became a thing. Um, it was one of the ones that got a lot of uh, people who were looking for something different from lagers. But I, during Good Beer Week, I went to a tasting in Melbourne featuring the Rodenbach beers, and I was interested to learn that you know the, these days they are pasteurised um, before they're sent out, which to me seems that like both to craft beer and uh, particularly to, to beers made in the way that uh, Rodenbach is, something of an anathema. But they were still very complex, very interesting. They were wonderful culinary beers, and... It stabilised them for export, so it, it, it ensured the quality. So, to me, that actually spoke a lot about you know you, you can be a little bit too much of a purist um, in, in your view of some of these things around pasteurisation and uh, things. But if you want to get the best beers around the world, you need to be willing to uh, compromise the, the you know, bigger brewery practices. And I think you know, I mean, a lot of breweries are doing those, doing that now. You look at. Um, the centrifuge, which is now appearing in a lot of, you know, a lot of craft breweries. I mean, that was a big brewery tool for a long time, but it's a very, very um, sensible way to remove, you know, solids from from your beer and try and get the most out of it. Is that another nail in the coffin of this whole idea of, you know, craft beer that you know is something of a purist's uh, definition? And you know, ultimately, we want to drink well-made, flavoursome beer that you know has a shelf life and you know can can be sent. You know, beyond the uh, you know, next suburb. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you know, it'd be interesting to do really do some, you know, get you know, get some really interesting craft beer, potentially um, officiados, and, and and have them in a blind tasting and, and throw in some interesting beers that maybe come from different breweries and, and see how they go, really, because I think. When you have a look at the quality that comes out of the bigger breweries, I mean, they're making beers that, that uh, you know, they taste the same everywhere, and it's generally the publicans that change the taste in the beers. So, 
by not cleaning their lines or, or not you know looking after them as, as well as what they should it's not the actual breweries that are sending the, the beer out and uh, I think uh, yeah I think uh, the word craft is is um, you know it, it's not fair on the big guys what what's the best thing about beer at the moment the best thing about beer is that I don't think I'll ever tire from coming up with new beers. I think that the flavour potential in beer is incredible and that the amount of new ingredients that keep popping up that give us brewers a chance to come up with new new uh, flavours and new, new new beer styles as well as just new new beers in, in styles. Um, I just, uh, you know, I just, uh, each, every day there's, there's new... There's, a, there's new, uh, yeah, new ingredients coming around that are obviously going to create new flavours, and uh, I think that's the the best thing about beer. I don't think you can ever you'll ever get tired of that. The the worst thing about the current beer scene. Uh, the worst thing about the current beer scene. Uh, we need more brewers with stainless steel tanks. More people with, you know, getting more people committing to the brewing industry rather than than, you know hiding under someone else's stainless tanks. I think, you know, I think the industry's only going to grow if more people go through the process of getting stainless steel. It's uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not a survival model when you, when you have a lot of brands operating out of the one brewery. I just don't see that as a viable, you know, viable going forward. We've already seen that one big... Uh, Contract brewery had to change hands up in Sydney, and you know who knows what will happen with other ones going forward. I mean, the margins on making beer, buying beer from somebody else, and reselling it, are just not not uh, you know, they're not equitable, are they? What What do you think drives that? Why Why do you think more people is it an easier entry to market? Because everyone who brews that way. You know, professors to wanting to own their own brewery, and some have. Um, you know, I don't know. Do you know? How, I mean, I must. I might be missing the obvious there, but I'm not sure. I know a lot of people who have started their beer brand in a brewery, or buying buying their beer brand, buying the beer for their beer brand in another brewery, and then setting up their own. Oh, I, I guess I'm thinking uh, Vale um, ended up building a brewery. Uh, Two yep. Birds. Yep. But then, then again, I guess it, it, they ended up as a hybrid model as opposed to a full production, self-production model as well. Yeah, okay. So there are there are people that can do it. I mean, I guess two birds have seen the light pretty quickly though, and putting their own brewery and they can come up with their own interesting beers and also control their quality, which is pretty important. I think that's the thing that can't, that's the problem with the, with the contract brewing model is that. Um, Consistency of people's products are, are definitely not the same as if you control it all yourself in your own brewery. And that, that's certainly a reason brewers such as Stone and Wood give for uh, keeping all of their production house. They want to own the quality as opposed to just the uh, the, the, the label. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, new labelling laws are going to come in soon. We all have to actually say where your beer is made. Is that? I'm pretty sure that's correct. Well, the, the ACCC is certainly uh, cram, uh, cracking down on that. We are seeing a lot of brewers uh, changing their labels to uh, more accurately reflect um, the, the, the story behind it. So um, so I, I guess the last question uh, for, for this chat is, what's next for Richard Watkins and uh, Ben Spoke? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we're only one, so we've still got a long way to go. We've still got a lot better at everything. I mean, 
you know. Um, there's always things we can, yeah, work on, and, and you know, certainly we're still learning a lot from mistakes we may have made along the way. Obviously, we got a few things right because we got, you know, selling selling lots of beer and lots of food, so we we're going along okay. But uh, certainly, working on on getting better at things is is one thing. Um, I mean, you know, I love the whole local brewery thing. I, I love the fact that that. Um, you know, we're in a, a little part of Australia and, and that's where you can get our beer in this, this part of Australia. If you want to get our beer, you know, come to Canberra. Um, and that's what we'd like to do. We'd probably like to get outside our four walls coming up and start to get our beer um, around um, Canberra. If, um, that'd, be, that'd be a good little start. I think that's um, pretty important, um, being, you know, being a brewery in Canberra. Um, so that's certainly something we're working on, and we'll we'll get that happening, you know, um, in the next couple of months. Oh, wonderful, Richard. Uh, well, we might leave it there. Congratulations on the first birthday. Congratulations on Ben Spoke, and uh, congratulations on uh, 20 years in the brewing industry. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. It's um, you know, you wouldn't want to be in another industry, would you? No, certainly not. So the the the, the fringe benefits aren't nearly as good. No, that's right. <laughs> Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. There you go. That was Richard Watkins from Benspoke, and you know, highly recommend uh, getting down to Canberra to, to go there. I'm certainly planning on taking the family down. We'll do the, uh, you know, National Library, the uh, War Memorial, and uh, Benspoke. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he and Tracy, I think, are doing. I've got a man on the ground there, uh, there at the moment. So shout out to uh, my mate Rob Grave, who's uh, with the Defence Department, and he's. Um, I won't say stuck in Canberra for a month, but uh, he was certainly, A, very impressed when he found out that um, that there was such a thing as Ben Spoke, and even more impressed when he um, found out it was close by to where he was staying for the second two weeks, and even more impressed when he timed it at 93 seconds door-to-door. <laughs> Perfect. So, well, uh, yeah, so he'll be spending a bit of time there in the next uh, week. Mate, it would be great to hear what he thinks of the beers, not just the uh, travelling time. Uh, yeah, yeah. And interesting too that like it's not like uh, either Wigger Pen or Bentspoke has been widely available as in like in bottles. You've you've really always either had to go there. All all his beers, the only beers I've ever tasted apart from uh, a trip to Wigan Pen way back when, um, have been at Gabs or during Good Beer Week. Um, uh, Newcastle. He, he had some beers on at Newcastle when we were down there. Oh, at yeah, we Cooks. Did. Yeah, we at the Albion Hotel. Yep, yep. And uh, Paul Mercurio and I and your good self, we actually did a 18-hour slow-cooked brisket in hickory chips that were soaked overnight in Bob's armpit. That's it. <laughs> that's the one. But uh, yeah, no, look, really nice guy. I should add, get him on a little bit more because he's one of these guys that's been around a long time. He's got a great perspective. But he's, you know, for for the conversation that we try and bring out here, he's certainly willing to talk about things. And uh, you know. There's something interesting about brewers that predate the whole social media thing. Um, you know, they used to have to, you know, find other ways to, to get the word out. So it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating. So and particularly fascinating when you, when you think that um, Richard is the kind of guy, as we just heard, who kind of um, makes the word laconic seem laid back. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> which, yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how people uh, find the interview. It's, it was great chatting to him, but yeah, whether it's great radio, we'll see. I, I certainly was fascinated. So uh, next chat, um, we're, we're speaking. One of the things that we've sort of touched on over, you know, recent editions, Prof, or uh, certainly over the last 12 months is with so many breweries open, um, where are all these brewers coming from? And, uh, you know, I... I, I Something that's stuck in my mind I've mentioned a few times is this idea that just because you make a crackingly good milk stout in your garage doesn't mean that you're necessarily fully equipped to run a production brewery and ship your beer around the country. Um, so Vince Costanzo uh, has Costanzo Brewing Consultants. He runs you know, home brewing and microbrewing training. Um, he sends out a really interesting newsletter um, that you know he, he targets some of the common perceptions about things like pasteurising and beer quality. And so I thought we'd get him on. He is a sponsor, the you know Alan Jones Bell Ringer. Actually, I don't think he is a current sponsor. Not a current sponsor. He has. He has in the past. He, ha- he has sponsored. Yeah, um, I might have to hit him up um, uh, for for some sponsorship. But yeah, no, he has been a sponsor in the past. So you know, but. It's a small industry. It's very hard not to have uh, you know, some connections with people. But anyway, it, it seemed like a good time to get him on just to talk about some of the base skills and the, some of the things that he's needed to, uh, well, that, that he's noticed um, you know, the, the industry and particularly those entering the industry need to, uh, to think about. I guess I go back a long, a long way. Um, I started off uh, working at uh, Carlton United Breweries as a brewer back in the mid-80s, so <laughs> showing my age there, but uh, yeah, um, I worked uh, as a brewer, as I said, for a few years, and then I... Did, did you train as a brewer, or did you? Or were you one of the guys who worked up through chemistry or uh, you know, some of the um, biological uh, sciences and, and entered brewing that way? Yeah, look, my, my actual uh, education was in chemistry, so basically I did a... Uh, Bachelor of Science, and then um, followed that up with uh, a Master of Science, so basically in chemistry all the way through. And um, there was no formal training as such in brewing, and very little in those days. Um, but the way that I learnt my craft was through uh, Carlton and United Breweries. Uh, they put me on as a brewer. I did have a little bit of work experience in uh, the food industry prior to that. Um, but it was a natural progression to go into brewing and I learnt my, my craft in-house, if you like, um, back in about 1986, as I said. And, and when did you move on from CUB? Um, about the year 2000. Um, at, it was an interesting year that year because what happened was that uh, they built a new laboratory and, and uh, I did move into the laboratory uh, sometime before that. And what happened when I'm talking about the laboratory is really from a process uh, improvement point of view. And um, then that was sort of based at Carlton, at the Carlton Brewery, the old Carlton Brewery. Um, But when it moved over to the new laboratories in 2000, that was about May from memory, um, about December they decided that they were going to go down a different track so after spending millions of dollars on a new brewery um, there was uh, a cut back on uh, on staff back back in 2000 that's sort of when I left. And you set up uh, Costanzo Brewing Consultants then or was that mm. subsequent was that a little bit later on? No that, that was a little bit later on I, I eventually um, found a position in a startup microbrewery in Melbourne called Stockade Brewery Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, went on to become Matilda Bay, and that 
became Matilda Bay Garage, that's correct. Yes. So uh, I was there for about four years, and uh, Matilda Bay, What the relationship we had with Matilda Bay was that we were doing some contract brewing with them, and they were one of the major customers. So, um, of course, Matilda Bay being um, you know part of the bigger Foster's group, uh, we, we already had the know-how of how to make their beers the way they wanted it. So it actually worked really well. But then they thought we were doing such a good job that they'd buy the company, and you've heard that sort of story before. So that was in about 2005, around about then, when, when that sort of changed ownership. And uh, but, So that, that gives us a bit of a background to, to you. I guess the, the, the reason we wanted to speak to you today is I'm a subscriber to your newsletter, um, the Cassento Brewing Consultants newsletter that you, you know, a, a lot of newsletters that you get um, from businesses are just pretty much plugging their latest product. But, you know, I always look forward to reading yours because you uh, deal with some very interesting issues around, you know, beer quality that are very much of interest to your clientele. But uh, it, it, it's, it's much more than that. You, you're giving away a lot of information when you do that, and I wanted to pick up on some of those themes. So I, I, I guess the, the the first thing I wanted to ask is, you know, where do you see the uh, the, the the craft of brewing um, at the moment? Well, craft brewing in Australia, if that's what you mean, is fairly new still. I think it's um, getting to a stage now where I think it's about 15 years really. We did have a stint of it in the late 80s, but that sort of failed and died out for various reasons. But uh, in the late 90s, it sort of started up again from what I could see. Um, I'm talking about the smaller guys, um, not so much the Matilda Bays because they've been around a lot longer than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I think the last 15 years it's sort of ramped up and I think now we're at the stage where uh, people have sort of looked at, yeah, we're, we're, we're brewing, we're selling beer, but now it's uh, it's an idea as we grow the industry that they're looking at quality in terms of shelf life and that sort of thing. And, and that's sort of where I came from when I was at Carlton United Breweries. I was looking at uh, the shelf life of beer in quite some detail. And um, as, as a result of that, products like Carlton Cold came onto the market for the first time and um, that required a lot of, I guess, uh, shelf life stability. And um, I, I see the same things going to be happening, I guess, in the, in the craft beer industry when uh, they get a better understanding of, of sort of what, what is the next level that they need to aim for. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. When you say shelf life stability for a beer like Carlton Cold, what is it and why was it important for that particular beer? Okay, probably uh, because it was the first uh, clear glass bottle made in Australia at the time, uh, there were a, a whole new area of um, knowledge that needed to be gained before that could become a reality. And one of the things, I guess, is not only we're talking about flavour stability, but we're talking about um, haze stability and also what we called back then particulate stability. And that's from a visual point of view because being in a clear bottle and being a filtered product, you must maintain that clarity as long as possible. So uh, it, it becomes very evident through a clear glass and it, as compared to a brown glass where you don't really see it. And what are some of the things that uh, affect um, clarity and stability um, with, with, with beer? Uh, well, we're talking about filtered beer to start off with. So if you don't filter your beer 
clarity and stability of the of in that regard isn't really that important. But what is important for filtered beer is that you maintain um, the clarity, and it's usually got to do with uh, protein and what we call polyphenols in beer. And it's a combination of these two, amongst other things. These are the two major ingredients that produce haze in beer, uh, generally spoken about as chill haze, and um, and also the particulate formation. Now, particulates are something that are a lot, you know, I think they're sort of related, but they're not exactly, one doesn't come from the other. So. It appears that particulates are a lot bigger. They could be up to one millimetre in, in diameter. And if you look at them under the microscope, they look a little bit like wrinkled skin. So we used to call them skins, to be honest. So <laughs> there's a fun, funny way of describing them. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that if you've got, you know, three or four or five of these particles in a very clear beer, they look quite... Uh, quite awful, to be honest, um, as compared to if you're looking at haze, a haze is much, much smaller particle, and they call them colloidal particles, and these haze particles can be in, in hundreds of thousands, but it looks like just like a haze in a beer, so it's not like it stands out, if you like, it just looks like it's cloudy, whereas the particulates are the ones that really uh, can show your beer off, there's been, uh, yeah, it can it can look unyielding and it can look uh, awful and and uh, we've had um, you know part of my job was to try and minimize the particulate side of it and, and what is it about storing uh, beer because obviously uh, you know we, we well maybe not we haven't all but uh, people of a certain age grew up where you know beer was just something you picked up on the shelf of your local bottle shop you took it home maybe stored it in your garage as you gradually worked your way through it and it was you know for, for want of a better word bulletproof um, uh, what is it about storing beer on a shelf that can affect some of those qualities you were just talking about? Well, well I guess one of the major things is the temperature that it's stored at. Um, it's been shown very dramatically that uh, if you store beer cold, it's got a much longer uh, or, or a less propensity to form chill haze and particulates in beer. So if you're storing it in the garage, especially you know in, in areas where it gets up to 40 degrees or, or more, you basically... Um, oxidizing the beer very very quickly because of the temperature so the higher the temperature the the, the shorter the shelf life we say in terms of uh, the visibility and also the flavor of the beer now this is relevant to craft the, the craft beer industry because you know it's very hard to put particular time frames on it but we're moving out of that initial um, great rush of new breweries and new styles and you know, my read of it is that the breweries that are going to do really well from here are ones that start looking on quality and uh, you know looking at not just making a great beer that's great when it leaves the brewery, but that it arrives um, at, at the final drinker in um, the, the, the same condition. Is that a fair comment to make? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, um, you know, during my classes, I always sort of ask that question. Uh, when you when you go to the brewery, you're drinking brewery fresh, and CUB make a, a big deal about that when they're when they're advertising Carlton's draft. Um, brewery fresh means basically as close as you can get it to the brewery, without having to travel too far and um, and change its flavour profile. So keeping the beer fresh as compared to 
uh, when it's on the shelf is two different things because a lot of people don't realise that the travel, the heat, the the fact that it goes further and further away from the brewery, um, and and this becomes important when you're growing and you're bigger and you're you're not actually supplying a local market but you're supplying a national market, and and in some cases international, um, the beer is more prone to to change in flavour, and if it's a filter beer, definitely in in its uh, visual aspects as well. I guess visibility is is uh, one of those things with. Um uh craft um beer is that uh, we've had a lot of cloudy beers that you know they, they've made a big point of it and cooper's famously was uh, made a big point about it being cloudy but fine and some of those things weren't I- important but um what what are the things that if i'm a home brewer who's looking at uh sort of making some beers um and, and i'm thinking of sending it to a, a fairly wide market what are the things i need to be uh thinking about um, when it comes to opening my brewery? Well, the, the major thing, I guess, is uh, oxygen. So getting oxygen in beer is really the starting point for all your problems for uh, flavour stability. So if you, if you have an unfiltered beer, flavour stability is still important. Um, not so much visual, but uh, flavour is, is always going to be the, the overriding factor. And by minimising the amount of oxygen that's picked up during the uh, transfer of the beer from one tank to another and also in the packaging process itself, which actually is where a lot of oxygen gets into the beer, and we're talking about dissolved oxygen here, then that will have a big impact on how the beer fares when it's out in the marketplace. And so, to some extent, the brewer has got some control over that process. Um, but to, to have control, you really need to be able to measure the amount of oxygen throughout the processing of beer and, and in the bottle before, or even in the keg before it leaves the brewery. Um, so, one of the things that uh, I try and get people to understand is that, you know, just because you need to buy some equipment, um, you shouldn't, and it's going to cost you a bit of money too to do that. And you know, quality costs basically. Um, you shouldn't put that off. And even if you can't do it initially, it's it's, it's got to be one of your major goals in acquiring some sort of instrumentation to to measure that, and also to be able to get the right equipment to minimise the oxygen uptake in the first place. Yeah, how, I mean, what, what sort of equipment are you l- looking at doing? Is it a better bottling line, not sort of bottling? Uh, you know, a, a lot of home brewers I've spoken to sort of talk about, oh, well, we don't need to bottle too much; we can bottle by hand. Is that the sort of stuff that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, the, the bottling process itself is really the major issue. We can use certain procedures to minimise oxygen uptake during, you know, transfers, but we can't really, unless we've got a very good bottling line. Um, it's it's going to be very difficult to stop oxygen getting into the bottle or into the can as well. Another thing you've written about in your newsletter is pasteurisation, and I think for a lot of um, you know craft beer purists who see you know pasteurisation as being an evil, um, but if you're sending your beer you know across the country around the world, um, it, it's something people really need to to think of, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but 
to, you can't pasteurise all beer. There's, there's um, two caveats that uh, need to be considered first, and, and one is it's got to be totally free of yeast. So in other words, it has to be filtered in some way. And, and secondly, the oxygen content of that beer needs to be very, very low. And we're talking about these days we can achieve oxygen levels below 0.1 uh, parts per million, which is quite low compared to what it was 20 years ago. Um, both those two conditions, if they're met, will, will mean that we can pasteurise the beer. And what pasteurisation then does is kills um, bacteria and, and stops spoilage of, of the beer when it's going around the world or going around Australia. So, you know, Even having read um, your, your articles about and knowing sort of intellectually that that's the case. It always just sort of felt a little bit something, um, you know, when craft beer is meant to be about the flavour, pasteurisation can have an effect sure. um, on the flavour. And uh, I'd always felt that, oh, look, you know, I, I know what you're saying, but I'd still rather have the flavour. But then yep. during Good Beer Week, I went to the Rodenbach um, tasting. Um, I was surprised to learn that Rodenbach pasteurises these days for their international markets. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of thought, well, you know, if you can still get that sort of flavour, Maybe it's not such a bad thing. Yeah, look, there's, there's a couple of things you've got to understand about pasteurisation, and one is that um, yes, you can change the flavour with pasteurisation if you what we call over pasteurise the beer. So one of the things that um, the people that use pasteurisers is that they they can measure the amount of um, what they call pasteurisation units that the beer is exposed to. And if you're in, a, in the right range, there's very little change in flavour and, and it's very difficult for anyone just tasting a beer saying, well, the flavour has, has changed. Um, so you can over-pasteurise and give, give you a cooked, uh, even stale um, flavour in your beer. But that, that's at the control of the, uh, the brewer if he, if he understands what he's doing. So it's not really a bad thing. And I can understand also, in terms of having yeast in a beer, um, that's, that's another issue with uh, filtration. People say that filtration removes flavour out, out of the beer. Well, my, my short answer to that is that it really depends on what style of beer you're looking at. And, um, you know, things like lagers and pilsners and cultures. Um, by definition, need to be crisp and clean and easy to drink. Um, so filtration in that case is, is very important. But other other types of products like wheat beers and maybe some pale ales and things like that can do with a little bit of uh, yeast in, in their product and, and gives it an interesting, um, I guess, smooth flavour to it. Uh, but, but on the other hand, if you have too much yeast in your beer, and I've seen a few breweries and... I've uh, seen some that look like almost like pea and ham soup. Yeah, they look like yeah, pea soup, and um, and I we did a little experiment with uh, one of the filtration companies on one of the local breweries because they, they realised they were getting too much yeast in their beer. And uh, we did a partial filtration, if you like. We didn't remove all the yeast, we just removed some of it, maybe 50% of it. And before that, the brewer was always complaining that they weren't getting enough hop aroma flavour coming through their beers, although they were using quite a, a lot, probably more than what you would need to, um, of hop aroma. And as soon as we did this little filtration and we tasted the beer 
the and compared it to the one unfiltered, it just came alive. It was just incredible. It just all those aroma flavors just came shooting through. Not only that, also the multi the maltiness in the beer just came came through, and it was just like you know you were taking a cover off it, and, and you can actually uh, appreciate the beer a lot better for what it's meant to be. I guess going back to that mindset of the purest craft beer mentality, um, you know, technology is not a bad thing, is it? Well, if you use it right, it's it's a good thing. Um, like, I mean, we can go back thousands of years when the Egyptians used to brew beer, and they didn't really have much of a scientific understanding of of brewing, and they used to brew the beer just for two or three days. And then, and then that's it. So you can imagine they didn't use any hops. <laughs> they uh, they only brewed it for a very short period of time, so it had um, uh, a very sweet, worthy flavour still to it, and very low in alcohol. So we've come a long way, and technology has been part of that to, to help us. And, and the understanding from the science and the research that's gone on before in the last hundred years or so. But. We don't have much time for much more today, but it's certainly there's a whole lot of themes in here I would like to uh, pick up uh, with from time to time to uh, to um, develop and certainly get you on when we have particular issues. But where can people uh, learn a little bit more about your uh, classes and uh, learn a little bit more uh, for themselves and come and ask their own questions of you? Yeah, sure. Look, um, I do have a website, and I guess that's the first point of call, if you like. Um, it's at costanzabrewing.com, www.costanzabrewing.com. So there, there is a... We'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and, and there's also a link to home brewing and courses, so you can actually read up on them, and uh, you know anyone who's interested in, in doing a course uh, can just uh, book online. And you, it's a travelling roadshow, isn't it? So you well, travel to each of the major capital cities and also across to New Zealand? Yes, that's right. So, you know, Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Wellington and um, Auckland at, at this stage. And I'm also looking at doing courses in Singapore. Uh, but then that, that's a quite young market as far as home brewing is concerned. Uh, but they have got. And it a, is for home brewers and aspiring professional brewers, isn't it? Yeah, it's for home brewers who want to aspire to become a professional brewer. Um, there's no reason why, it, if you just want to remain a home brewer, you'll get you'll get a lot of tips and and um, hone in on your skills, just the same as you would if you were wanting to become a, a professional brewer. Excellent. Well, Vince Casenzo, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News, and uh, we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Vince Costanzo. Do you know Vince at all, Prof? I do. Yep, we've, um, we got together, he invited me out, and we had a bit of a beer together and a bit of a chat about the industry and all that sort of thing. Because um, he's had a fair bit of experience in 
uh, in the big house, one of the big mm-hmm. houses. Um, and and in terms of um, you know the the science of of brewing, there are probably few people who know um, nearly as much and can communicate it as effectively. Um, certainly, as a layperson, I found I was understanding a, a lot about. Uh, quality control and quality assurance and, you know, what's important in brewing, as you, as you alluded to before, um, just by having a chat with him. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, there is this divide, you know, craft beer versus macro swill mindset. And I think a lot of the people who buy into that forget that there's some, you know, in fact, I've never met a brewer in uh you know, the the big houses that aren't passionate brewers. And uh, you also can't get away from the fact that they are so quality-driven um, in you know, absolute terms. Maybe they're, they're going for a broader market where the, the, the flavour isn't as big as some other craft beers, but in quality terms, you can you find it very hard to fault them on, on that uh, side. And you know, Vince certainly brings a lot of that to, uh, to his classes, as well as you know, being very much a craft mindset. So... Um, Moving on to the last interview, now a man that probably needs no introduction, James Smith, better known as the Crafty Pint. Um, well, no, 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 hang on, I'm going to stand up for him here because he's not better known as the Crafty Pint. He's, he, can, he, he cannot define him by his, uh, by his website. See, there are, there, are two, there are two types of people. There are, in the same way that um, there are plenty of people who refer to me as Pete and others who refer to me as Prof. And then there's a whole other group through my work with the Melbourne Storm and the, uh, the Banner Crew who know me as Mitch. Um, Crafty or James, if you if you knew him, those who knew him before he started the Crafty Pint, call him James, and then and then Post is uh, is Crafty. So I okay. whilst I don't think he's disowned it, I think he he, he doesn't uh, necessarily. Well, we can ask him. Well, and, and we might do that. I guess I prefer James, given I've had it for longer. But um, <laughs> there have been people I've known since before Crafty Pint, who started calling me Crafty, which has been a bit weird. Um, friends like, you know, Glenn from, who's the head brewer at Temple now. I've known him from long before Crafty Pint launched, and a while ago he started calling me me Crafty. So I, I guess it's something I don't necessarily get a say in, but I, I do prefer James generally. But it is. I mean, it, it's a real testament to the impact that the Crafty Pint, the website, uh, I feel the need to say that just in case there is somebody out there who hasn't heard of the Crafty Pint, um, that your website has uh, and you know, has had in the Australian beer industry over the last uh, five or six years since it launched. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I can't complain that it's well, whether you call it cut through or whatever, but certainly it means that I guess it's had an impact, and or maybe it's just you know crafty. It, Aussies love nicknames, and you can't do a great deal with. Well, I suppose you could have Jim, Jimmy. I've been called Jimmy by the Good Beer Week team. Jim Bob, Jimbo, <laughs> mate. We... But um, yeah, craft, craft, you know, crafty people love a nickname over here, so I guess they they leapt on crafty. And uh, and it's certainly the persona that a lot of people know you for. But another persona that people uh, might know you for is Good Beer Week, which uh, was run and won uh, back in May. Um, yep. Give us a little bit of a you know a rundown of how things went. Um, well, I guess it was the the fifth Good Beer Week, and um. Each year, as I'm sure we've discussed in the past, like we've always been amazed as to how each year has gone from from day one. You know, I guess you put effort in and you hope things are going to go well, and every every year it's blown us away. But this year, um, it really felt like a it's gone, you know, t- taking even greater strides. I think right from the opening party on the Friday night, whether it was because we had you know a 
a city councillor there alongside me and and Brad Rogers from Stone and Wood opening the festival. So that gave it some sort of gravitas, whether it was because it was in the city, whether it's because there was huge numbers, I don't know. But there was, to me, even at that opening night party, there was a different feeling in the air, almost, you know, maybe amongst the beer world people that there was a, a sense of having made it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I think Good Beer Week in the beer world has been established and we've had greater numbers of people from who have been outside the sort of the, the core beer world coming for the last couple of years. But it really feels like sort of good beer or, you know, the sort of the, you know, I guess the microbrewing world or whatever has really taken a step up or a step out into the, the mainstream um, in the last year or so. And so there was there was a di- different feel there. And and I think just, yeah, just, just numbers wise across the board and um, attendance, whether it was, you know, sort of the showcase venues. I was amazed on sort of the opening weekend, the Sunday, Monday nights, I was out reasonably late and you were going around some of the venues that were doing showcases and there was nobody from Melbourne. It was Kiwis and Queenslanders and people from WA and SA that were over for the whole week. Um, and, you know, that, that was a good sign. Um, and then I guess even sort of wrapping it up with, uh, you know, Gabs, they'd had 12, they'd been stuck around 11, 12,000 attendees for the past two or three years. And you did sort of wonder with them taking Gabs to Sydney whether um, that would cannibalise their numbers. But not only did we have more people attending across Good Beer Week, they increased by 4,000 again, even though there was another, you know, another festival going on up in, in Sydney. So it just it just really felt like what we've been trying to create and what we've been talking up is actually really happening. Um, and it really is a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a seriously major event now, so... Did you, do you, I know that you're deeply enmeshed in it, but do you get to go um, to any events, you know, in some capacity as a punter, as just a person who gets to go along and enjoy, or do you basically swan around, uh, sorry, that's a very unfair (laughs) way of putting it, um, you know, just sort of... uh, Some sort of robe and a a carrying... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, but, but, you know, sort of flip flip between them just to to, to keep an eye without actually getting to, you know, sit down and enjoy a beer and uh, just enjoy the ambience and the, and, you know, all all that goes on at a good good beer week event. Um, Not so much, just, I mean, especially this year, there was obviously, you know, hosting speaking at the opening party and then hosting events on um saturday sunday tuesday um thursday to extent friday so there was a lot of that and then there was there were sort of people um i sort of hosted unofficially outside of it so we had a journalist over from uh london uh who was writing an article for all about beer magazine which apparently is on melbourne being the world's next great beer city so that was Quite kind of exciting. Who, who was the journal? Uh, so Will Hawks, uh, who's done okay, stuff yeah. for Epicure. So I took him around a few bars one afternoon. Then there was some restaurateurs from Sydney had come down on the Wednesday to meet up just to have a chat about getting some local beers into their venue. So there was all that kind of stuff. But I mean, there was a bit of Pint of Origin visiting and um, I went to the Jester King event just as a sort of to check it out. And that was that was great just to sort of, you know, hover at the back and just taste some beers. Um, but uh yeah, you try and get out a little bit, but it's also a case of, of managing things. You know, I'm nearly 40 now, so had, had a couple of days off in the middle. And I guess when you're hosting, I was hosting that the Mega Degger on the Friday as well, so I wanted to make sure I was in good condition for that. But yeah, I mean, you still get a, a feel for what's going on. You get the feedback. You you know, you pop into venues and have a chat, and you hear good tales from them. Um, you know, I, I know Carwin Sellers who were doing Belgique Week. They had their record taking at their bar on the opening Saturday, and they'd had record takings by 7 p.m. So it just you were getting that sort of feedback that everything was generally going very well. 
And were there any events that had to cancel for, for lack of numbers? Because I know that that was an issue with some of the, the venues in Brisbane during uh, Bruce Vegas. Uh, some of the venues that possibly just thought having an event during the week was enough uh, had to cancel their events. Was there much of that? There was a small number. There was there was maybe two or three regional events, um, one or two of which I think just threw in the towel too early um, and they would have been fine. Um, I was chatting to someone from uh, down in Torquay and they sort of, we worked really hard and they worked hard. Well, we worked hard with all, all the venues to try and sell tickets and, and they got to probably three quarters in the end and had a great day. And I said, oh, you know, I asked sort of generally about regional events, you know, could we do this? Could we switch things around? And they were like, no, no, we really, you know, want to have all these events taking place regionally during Good Beer Week. It's just a real struggle regionally to get people to come to events. So, you know, I think that's something that even talking to Melbourne Food and Wine, you know, they have a huge regional program and have a whole weekend dedicated to it. And it's just regional events can be a, a harder sell. And then within the city, um, there was a small number and there was there was some that you know you look at the event and go that's an amazing event and it promoted well and they just were you know a tough sell but thankfully you know there was still a record number of sellouts and a lot of other events that probably got within four or five of selling out and others that sold over 100 you know 150 tickets um as well so it, yeah, i mean there's always there's always seems to be a small number very small number and you sometimes can't understand why you know they're a good event they're well priced they're cool they're you know you just it's kind of unpredictable um but overall you know everything was number of events was up number of sellouts was up number of ticket sales was up you know it was yeah just everything just felt like a, like i say a big a big stride forward again on 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 top of what was a pretty good situation already now, the, the, the Good Beer Week committee um, or the, the Good Beer Week event is a not-for-profit um, body. Yeah. Um, it, it's sort of always struggled to sort of get the, the, the commercial interest uh, to help things expand. How did it go commercially this year? Pretty much as it has done before. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the, the one thing that, that Good Beer Week, uh, I guess, the, 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 main, the main thing it needs to sort of, I guess, that needs to improve going ahead is um, – is the commercial side of things um it's i mean it is a not-for-profit it always will be a not-for-profit as long as um i'm involved i think that you know it 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 keeps it sort of true to what it should be and it ensures that it is i guess a community um a community based and community run and um driven uh, organization um but it'd still be nice if the people running it got paid a decent wage um and that's not yet happening um not not everyone's working as a volunteer anymore they haven't been for maybe the last two years um but uh, yeah i mean that, that's that's a challenge but I'm, I'm confident that this year we we've sort of got ongoing conversation with some people that are maybe in you know involved as as partners to a certain level who want to take things on we've met with a lot more people to sort of get advice on 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 how to do these kind of things we've had some long-term strategy meetings with um people you know who've been sort of driving those meetings in the way you might drive that sort of meeting at a uh, you know a, a, a serious you know corporate and that's actually been it might sound like the most unbeery, unfun thing, but it was actually inspirational to sit there with the rest of the committee and be driven down to what the festival's values were and its purpose was and where it wants to be. And because we all care about it and love it, it was quite amazing, and, you know, how much I guess we shared in common, but just how how far the festival's come and just how far we believe it can go. 
Um, and we also know that we need to bring in one or two people with skills in areas that you know will help us make it commercially viable. But I think the fact we have City of Melbourne um, support this year for the first time and Tourism Victoria support for the first time, City of Yarra, um, all to a small amount, um, but... I think they were testing the water with us because they're giving us money. They all came down and checked out the festival. They get what it's about and they understand that it is something that's really fantastic. And I'm pretty confident that we're going to have, you know, great, greater success with them in the future. So all everything's pointing towards, I think, you know, this year being the springboard for that, for that side of things to catch up with, you know, I guess the quality and the, um, you know, the popularity of the festival. It's sort of that's the final the final strand we need to we need to pull into line with 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 the rest of it. On, on that uh, note, I, I guess uh, you've just announced or sent out a media release announcing the dates for 2016, but also that you'll be stepping back and taking a little bit more of a, a background role. It, it must have been an incredible uh you know, commitment to you and uh, taking a lot of your time to get the up and running away from things like the Crafty Pint and your other um, writing endeavours. Yeah. Um, congratulations on, on doing that, but tell us a little bit about the thinking in uh, taking a, 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 you know, more of a back seat. Well, I'm, I hope I'm not like the, you know, the stereotypical backseat driver. Hopefully I'll be able to contribute what is needed <laughs> and not um, get in the way. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it has been a lot of thought about it over the past few months and certainly over the last sort of week, couple of weeks since the festival. But um, I sort of launched the Crafty Pint in September 2010. And then we had our, my wife and I had our first child four months later. And then Good Beer Week kind of fell into my lap two, two months after that. So without wishing to sort of make a child sound like a project, that was kind of, <laughs> that was three pretty major projects all starting within the space of six months that I'd never done before. Um, and so, you know, it's been fantastic and it's been great that all of them um, are going so well. I, I feel like I shouldn't be talking about my daughter in, in that sort of way, but anyway, <laughs> but you know, it, it is tough and, and there's, you know, there's been everything, you know, is, is, going in the right direction and good beer week allegedly is is one of the best you know beer festivals in the world which we're very you know i guess we're ahead of where we even plan to be with that um and you get to the point where i have you know i've got another child arriving two weeks today from when we're speaking and that was sort of looming large i guess um and it's just it, you know it, it does trying to do all three things does get pretty um pretty intense and i think it was time to start thinking about my family and my health um and and also you know i guess i've sort of abandoned a lot of the or given up a lot of the writing i was doing a lot of the, the journalistic stuff i was doing um just to focus on crafty and good beer week and even that was was becoming um you know both of those are only getting bigger and bigger um and the great thing is good beer week as a festival is now an incredibly strong festival it like as we've discussed over the last 10 minutes it's it is you know it's become this this beast um that is this well known worldwide it's well attended it has a structure and you know like I said we have a structure we have a website we're happy with now we have a a route, you know a sort of a, a schedule over the 12 months that works very well we have kate patterson who's our general manager who has been doing far more in terms of running the festival than i have over the last sort of two or three years anyway and then there's other team members who've been you know getting involved more and more and know exactly how things need to run so instead of i mean i've been been thinking about stepping down i had early discussions with the team a few months ago and i think there might have been a temptation when good beer week was just so amazing this week to go oh you know what, I can't walk away, you know, or step back. But 
it was actually the opposite. I was like, you know, the great thing is good beer week is so strong now that I can step back knowing that it's going to be awesome. Um, so, that was it and my wife sort of she tried to play devil's advocate going oh you know it went so well james i understand if you're going to keep going and then when i sort of after a week or so of, of thinking about it i confirmed that i was sticking to my guns she was like thank god <laughs> that. um so yeah so it'd just be nice to um you know watch watch what's good beer week continue to grow and offer input where i can and and you know help out where i'm needed but um also have a bit more time with my family and and to do a lot of the things with crafty pint that i've been wanting to do for two three four years and and have had to sort of you know leave to one side so so what's next for the uh, crafty pint uh Basically, I guess there's content ideas. I want to have sort of, I guess, more um, in-depth content. It's very, I guess, a lot of the content I put on there, I think it's, you know, it's well written and it is of, it's of use, but I don't have time to really dig into subjects or, you know, dedicate as much time as I'd like to. Um, Nick, who's been writing this Crafty Pint New South Wales, he actually on the day that I told the committee my final decision, he'd quit one of his jobs in Sydney. So he's coming on part-time and just looking to get, I guess, get more contributors. Um, there's a, a new scheme for readers that will be launched soon. Uh, I won't say too much about it just yet, um, but essentially just, you know, get it where it needs to be. There's so many venues and breweries that have been have asked for listings on the website that I haven't had the time to do. So really just sort of make it what, I always imagined it would be four and a half years ago um and it's sort of it, it it's a lot of the way there but it's also not all the, all of the way there so oh well, uh, we wish you well in all of your endeavors and congratulate you on endeavors past uh, james smith thank you very much for joining us for radio bruce news thank you matt see you soon there you go um great guy very passionate uh beer guy um you know has done I'm going think of very few people who aren't actually, you know, strapping on the gumboots uh, daily who have done as much for the beer industry over the last decade as James has. Um, hardest, hardest working man in beer by far. Oh, man, I don't know how he does it. So it's, you know, it's no surprise that he's stepping back a little bit from uh, Good Beer Week. Um, he feels that it's in good hands um, and stepping back to <laughs> concentrate on his family and you know, his, his real job. A, he's, he's, yeah, it's a two-parter. Um, he's very comfortable that um, that his his um, his baby, if you like, is is in good hands in in Good Beer Week, uh, but also aware that um, uh, his testicles are also in someone else's hands, and he wants to he wishes to protect them. Yeah, no, it was great to chat with James, and uh, we wish him all the best. And uh, yeah, certainly, you know, Crafty Pint um, is a great read. Um, so, Prof, well, look, mate, that, that's it. Actually, one thing I wanted to ask, maybe just going right back to the very start of the episode, uh, and I meant to ask you then uh, about the whole import versus, uh, you know, um, local beer. Where does that stand for Brooklyn Lager for you with the uh, the, the, the news that James, our editor, James Atkinson, broke um, this week that uh, Brooklyn will now be brewed uh, by Coopers? I, I will now drink more of it because it's local. So, So it's not... The, the the brand it's is it the freshness or is it the uh, you know the supporting the local industry element? Uh, well, look, it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, I, certainly, look, I, I guess we're we're probably a little bit different in that our our roles in the in the craft beer community require us, I, I guess, to drink more widely than than some others uh, are forced to in inverted commas. Um, so, but but by the same token, I I still uh, um, and always will be a staunch advocate for Australian craft beer. So, um, 
yeah, it's it, it's it's a tricky one in terms of the yeah the um the philosophical or the yeah the ethics behind it. Um, I will certainly drink more more Brooklyn beer now than I would have. There you go. I'm looking forward to trying it. So, mate, we, we'd best sail on out of here. Strike up the band before we go, listeners. If you are uh, listening to us, please jump online to iTunes and uh, give us a, a rating if you like what we're doing. We don't ask for any money for what we do, but you can certainly help us out by helping to spread the good word. So uh, it's been great ch- catching up, Pete. Look forward to chatting with you again uh, next week. And you, you, we're going to be hopefully uh, catching up in a bar. You're going to be up in sunny Queensland. Yeah, we might have a yeah, podcast from the pub. If um, Taps at Malula Bar are listening, they might be able to find a little corner table for us. We might be able to give them a little bit of a promo in return for a, a quiet corner. We'll certainly find something. So, Pete, always good to chat. Talk to you soon. No worries. See you, Matt. See you, listeners. And we're out.